Our cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and the private sector. Why not register and join us at the Macromedics User Meeting on the 8th of November at the Novotel Hotel in London Paddington? This will be an incredibly insightful day to listen to talks on the Macromedics mobilisation range from our various ranges of thermoplastics all the way to our all-in-one solutions and SBRT products. Please do get in touch for more information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. If you would like to browse our products, please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 62. My name is Naven Chalker Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest Stuart O'Callaghan who talks about their experience of cancer and the charity Live Through This that they founded. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening Ashwin Apadia who will be discussing his experience of being a South Asian person from the LGBTQ plus community working in the NHS. Hi Ashwin. Hi Naman, how are you? Good, thank you for coming on. Um, Thank you you very much for having me. That was, um, I was really excited when you offered me to come on this podcast because there's so much that I can share and hopefully that will help other people to understand and navigate their own life. Good, well, could you start by telling us a bit about your career to date? Sure. So I grew up in a small little suburban town outside of Mumbai, um, graduated with a bachelor's in physiotherapy in 2005, um, worked for about two years at a trauma center in Mumbai and then moved to America in 2008, did a master's in health sciences at the University of Indianapolis and then moved to New York where I lived my best life for about six and a half, seven years. Um, met my husband while I was in New York and then we decided to move to the UK so I moved to the UK in 2017 I've been working in worked in private sector worked in the NHS um, I've recently started a master's in advanced clinical practice in critical care at Brunel University mm-hmm. I've just completed my PG dip in the last year of dissertation now so lots going on Wow, that's quite a career to date. <laughs> Lots that you've just uh, reeled off there really quickly. Um, what do you love about being a physiotherapist? Oh, so many things. Um, people always say that they can't shut me up and I love to talk, I love to chat and I think that's a gift and it's something that patients um, love about physios is the fact that they can actually talk to someone. It's almost like sometimes we're were there as a psychological help because they can just let all their emotions out, let all their frustrations out, and the physio will always be there to listen to it, but also try and help them get independent and try to do what they need to do. So that's that's one of the best things about being a physio is just being able to help people, but also be able to listen to them and to be able to provide that listening ear, which they so desperately need in the NHS, especially when you, know, you don't have that much time to talk to the consultant, you might get a minute or 30 seconds maximum. So that physio session is quite important for them because that's a good 20 to 30 minutes they get to spend with the health professional and ask all the questions that they couldn't get an answer to. Sometimes we can answer some of them, sometimes we can't, but at least that that rapport that you 
create with the patient is absolutely amazing and you know you meet different kind of patients every day every day is a new challenge and I, I just love that about being a physio I think one thing you highlighted is that physios don't just do sports right exactly so that's that's definitely true because when people think of a physiotherapist to think of someone stretching a rugby player's legs on the field and like that's not all we do although some have those motivations to become a physio because hey why not but that's why I, I wanted to I always wanted to be a physio Ashford always <laughs> and that was literally why I was like oh what can I do I'll be a physio because I get to like rub men's legs all day that exactly. was literally some of my motivation some of my motivation <laughs> yeah I mean if if my inclination wasn't towards respiratory so much I definitely would have gone into MSK and I think people find it quite I would say disgusting when they say like why do you love phlegm so much I was like because I just do there's such, something so satisfying about being able to see a patient is struggling to breathe struggling to clear secretions you go in there you have a good session you help them clear that phlegm and the the the, the way their breathing improves and the way they're able to then speak full sentences is just remarkable so there's different aspects to physiotherapy not just an MSK physio we have stroke specialist neurospecialist and definitely respiratory and critical care specialist and a lot of people don't understand what is it that you would do in a critical care setting as a physiotherapist. These patients are on ventilators. Why would they want to do any kind of rehab? And for that, I would say that there's so much evidence out there now about trying to initiate early rehab in patients that are in critical care because that actually has led to better outcomes and reduced length of stay in critical care. So we do a lot of things in terms of a patient's holistic care and it's not just the respiratory side of things we also do rehabilitate patients i suppose through covid that's where the respiratory physio was really come to light wasn't it same as the diagnostic radiographer yeah, for chest x-rays um but did you have much to do during the pandemic so the pandemic was a bit of a weird funny time for me so i had just left my job at chelsea and westminster to move to the other side of the world to new zealand um I moved to New Zealand on 15th of March 2020, literally the day the pandemic hit. So I was there for two months uh, working at one of the biggest trauma centres there, but we didn't have any patients. And all I could hear from my UK colleagues is what was going on and how they were working night shifts and twilight shifts, which we as physios never did. And the amount of spotlight which was put on respiratory physios, it almost made me feel like I was missing out. I still remember my ex-boss sending me an email. It's like, I can't even imagine what you would have been like if you were here because it would have been difficult to get you home because you would have just stayed because anything to be in a spotlight, I'm there because respiratory physiotherapy is something that hasn't had so much um, spotlight in the last few years, but the COVID pandemic definitely put that put that on the line and it's like it's been amazing because now people understand what rehab and recovery means in the real sense and it's not just rehabilitation after you get out of the hospital but there's a lot of rehabilitation that happens even during an intensive care stay and during the hospital stay just through the pandemic just because i'm interested what what did it mean to prone someone um i think to start with it was like a novelty because we rarely did that unless we had a patient with ARDS that was really struggling to ventilate and we could not get their oxygen levels up so proning a patient pre-pandemic would happen maybe once in six months once in a year 
And every time that happened, all physios were like, oh, could you please let me know when you're proning a patient? Because, you know, you're not going to get that practice unless you're doing that on a daily basis. So it started off as a novelty, which was great because it really brought the team together. You would have uh, a consultant anesthetist or a consultant psychologist trying to help you because, you know, they were, they were it was all hands on in, in, in the critical care unit. So you, you literally had that sense of team spirit where people from across professions, across different hierarchies were all working together. And it was quite, it was quite traumatic on certain situations, especially when you see that the machines are beeping a little bit too much or someone's blood pressure is dropping or something else is happening. But you knew that you had all hands on deck and you knew that someone would manage that. And so that took the pressure off a little bit. But I think by the third wave, it became quite laborious to do that because you also had all these patients that you had to do the rehabilitation for. So finding the time and managing that balance between trying to see the patients that need rehab, but also the patients that need proming with limited staffing was quite difficult. So you said, Ashwin, that you like the spotlight um, and kind of promoting the profession, um, but you've recently um, been quite visible through the CSP for producing a blog um, and as part of that blog, highlighting your personal circumstances. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the blog and why that was so well received and got a lot of views through social media? Sure. Um, so when I was approached to do the article, I was in two minds because just to give a bit of a background. Um, so I'm out to my my mother in terms of my immediate family, but my father still has no clue. And I think it's my mother's way of protecting her own identity by not exposing her son's identity because then that threatens her own identity because then she becomes the mum, the Indian mum with a gay son. And that is a threat to her social status. That is a threat to her social interactions. So even though she accepts me when she comes and visits me here in the UK, where she comes and spends time with me and my husband, there's absolutely no problems. But when she steps out of that dynamic and moves back to India, it's almost like we don't talk about it. I'm not going to tell people that you have a husband because then that affects my social norms, that affects my social status, and then somehow I'll be looked down upon. And for me, I struggled with that for a couple of years. Since I moved to the UK, it's been easier for me in a way because I, I, I don't know for what reasons, because in America, it was really difficult. But since I moved to the UK, it was much easier. And I felt like it had come to a point where after receiving some, how do I put this? There were times when I would get comments from South Asian patients that would just like, why would you say that? And like, why are you ruining my day by saying that? And I need to like find a way, like how can I provide more exposure to South Asian gay men who are trying to navigate a being gay within your own community, but also being gay within a healthcare system, but also trying to navigate it within within their own self-identity. And that's why I felt like it was, it was there was a need to do this because the intersectionality of it is what creates the problem. It's not just being gay, it's being gay and South Asian because the cultural implications are massive. I would I would have patients that would casually be like, oh, you're married, so like, um, wh- wh- is your wife Indian or is she British? And, and I'm just like, why would you assume? But I get it from a cultural point of view why they would ask me that because we do live in a heteronormative society. And I would be like, oh, she's British. And I would just walk away with it. 
But then I would think about is like, why did I need to say that? I could have just said, well, he is British and I could have corrected them. But I knew that that would affect my clinical relationship with that patient because that patient is now going to judge me that I have somehow let down my own community by marrying a man. And so I had to hide those little things on a daily basis when I'm seeing patients. And then I'm like, I can't be my authentic self if I have to compartmentalize my professional identity along with my personal identity on a daily basis. So it got to a point where I felt like enough is enough. Like I need to share my story. I need to let people know how this makes me feel and how this makes other gay men who come from South Asian background makes them feel because someone who is white and straight doesn't have to go through this on a daily basis where they have to hide their own identity depending on the scenario, depending on the patient, depending on what people might perceive this as. So it became important for me to share this story so people who can relate to this can feel like, well, actually, you know what? Ashwin's living his authentic life now. He doesn't care. I need to start doing this as well. And how can I do this? And what support can I seek? It's interesting. I mean, just differences in society. Yeah, differences in society. But I suppose for anyone listening who doesn't understand why being South Asian might have more of a taboo on this topic, why for our culture is it viewed as almost illegal or not to be talked about being gay? So there are there are two different things to it. One, there is a religious aspect. And then one, there is the cultural aspect. Um, the cultural aspect has no explanation. I don't know if you've experienced that now, but it's like your parents tell you something and you let, and you question them why, just because. And it's like, but that doesn't make sense to me. Can you please elaborate and explain? And they just, this is how we do things. This is what happens. And this is what you're going to do. But there is no explanation to it because that's a cultural thing. It's like, this is what my parents did. This is what my grandparents did. And that's what you're going to do. But there is absolutely no explanation to that. And they can't reason it with you. You can't reason it with them. It just goes nowhere. And then there is the religious aspect of it where the constant the constant idea that it's, it's, it's morally wrong and that idea is put into your head from a very young age. and those And that's what puts that questioning of your own self-identity because you feel like you're doing something wrong and then you feel ashamed of it and then you try and hide that because you feel like if I let them know then A I'm going to be shamed for it B I'm going to probably be sent to like some baba or like a like a saint to like cure it with some I don't know sage kind of stuff and it's like that's not going to sort it because that's not going to help me so that's why it's difficult to navigate that because there are so many cultural implications to it it's also what will the society say if i have a gay son what does that mean for me from a societal cultural implication because what will people say because everything we do is based on what will people say if you decide to do arts instead of science it's like what is wrong with you what will people say that you know why are you doing taking arts as a subject because you're not going to make money from it because everything has to have a status symbol to it Everything has to have a, a hierarchy to it. It's like if mom, my mum and Naman's mum got together, it's like, well, he's a radiographer, he's a band seven. And she'll be like, well, my son's a band eight, hey, so I'm better than you. That's literally how that conversation will go. It's trying to have one up on each other by casually mentioning that. It's like, oh, that's great that Naman's doing well for himself, but my son's doing this, so I'm better than you. That constant comparison is what makes it difficult for gay men 
because then your parents will be like well you're 24 you're 25 it's time to get married because that one son got married and he already has two kids and when are you going to start doing this there is that pressure of getting married there is the pressure of having a certain standing in society so when she goes to weddings or when she goes to a social function she can brag about her son it's all about bragging rights that's how i see it because that's what that's what i experienced as a child it was constant bragging rights who can brag most about their kids and how much can they brag about it i don't think people understand that from a western point of view because that's not how culturally people talk about their kids it's like well he's living on his own great that's fine like you know just a simple example like oh he's working in the nhs great that's amazing that's good for him but that doesn't that's not good enough in an indian society you have to be somewhere high up like you have to be of some status where it's like you can't even just have a honda civic as a car like it has to be a mercedes it has to be a bmw because that's the status because as i said if naman's mom and my mom got together she's like well what car does your son have it's like oh he's got a bmw oh well my son's got a range rover so i'm better off does that make sense naman like do you have you experienced yeah, that so i was obviously born and raised in india um the society norm as in every society anywhere in the world it's you're you know i didn't unfortunately or fortunately have a dad growing up but if i had a dad everything dad says that's final they know better than everyone they're the one that earns the money my mum would have been a stay-at-home mum she wasn't because she worked harder than anyone i know but it's interesting that any society norm i think my mum when well my grandma gave me the sex talk which was awkward enough but then my mum tried to do the same thing later and she was like if you prefer men don't come home that was it that was the talk around that i'm straight i have a someone that i love who's a female that's fine but to her she just said well if you live together you need to get married or when you get your first car let me give you money so it's a good car exactly as you said so that people can see it and show me send me photos or you know if you're struggling for anything don't tell anyone i'll just give you money and then you don't have to show that you're struggling but you're never really accepting that things are going wrong that's always the the show in india and the way obviously in this country you have roads in india it's a society which is all like walled off for security but everyone you can see into everyone's garden everyone knows each other so anything that's wrong if someone goes to the hospital the whole whatsapp group knows there's always that pressure every single day um i don't miss that at all yeah i don't miss <laughs> that at all either it's same so as you when when you treat south south asian patients and you tell them oh yeah i'm living alone say so, how do you cook how do you clean for yourself it's like i use the washing machine i use the cooker i put food in the fridge like, as any normal person they're like no that's not your mum's not looking after you i'm like my mum lives well, in that's India. why you need a care. wife <laughs> yeah exactly that's why you need to get married like i've got this cousin she's really pretty do you know i could you know fix you up but that's it's interesting you said that because for your mum to ask say that if you are gonna marry a man and like that's it that's still for me that's still pro- in a way it's progressive because my mum's level was like just don't marry a muslim or a christian anyone else is fine like that's her level this is at least your mom had the option like the options went up to at least like you know don't marry a don't marry a man so like that thought didn't even cross my mom's head for her the the amount of um islamophobia and um colorism that exists within our own society because she's at that level still where it's like don't marry a dark girl and then don't marry a muslim or a christian because that will again bring me down in the society and i'm just like 
how how do you not understand this because growing up i was the darkest kid in my family and my nickname was blackie and it was just like having to navigate through that through your entire childhood and then when you move abroad and people are like oh my god look at your skin color it's amazing and it's like really because but that's the irony irony, isn't it because in india they push and push and push products to make your skin be fairer which is never going to happen because it's melanin (laughs) you can't change your melanin no matter how much turmeric paste you put on your face you might turn a bit yellow but you're not going to turn white like that's not going to happen and that's it's this is probably unrelated to the podcast but it's this is the reason why when you see an indian person of indian origin on a holiday abroad you don't see them sitting on a sunbed tanning like that never happens they'll be fully covered with like an umbrella to cover themselves from the sun because they do not want to get tan because that's that won't be looked that won't look good when they come back from a holiday from abroad because that's not what we do i'm really intrigued why is this is it is it to do with race and wanting white skin i i would say it's a hangover from colonialism because when right. when the british came and invaded india and took over it was they were looked as like you know because they were fair skinned and lighter skin like they spoke perfect english and it's just like people looked up to them as in like this is the way to be and this is what we need to aspire to be and the divide that they created, the whole divide and rule that um, the British the British did in India, created that a the race divide, and then the dark skin and the light skin divide. And I think the hangover from that still exists today. To which, which I think, like for example, my mum accepting me and my husband has got to do with the fact that he's white. If he was of any other race, I think all bets would have been off. Like there was no way my mum would have accepted that it would have just been a big no because he's white it's somehow acceptable I mean, that's just a coincidence for me but i do strongly believe that if i if my husband was from a different race my mother would just be like this is it we're, we're done this is not we're not going to have a relationship because there's no way i can deal with that i think it's interesting because people don't realize that in places like africa india actually there is racism but in a different kind of way Whereas here we'd be viewed as the outsiders, but in India, I mean, all you have to do is go to an airport. If you ever see anyone with very dark skin, if they're African, Caribbean, etc., they will always be stopped and searched, everything, all the time. But lighter skinned people will be ushered through, given a taxi straight away, that sort of thing. It's a very weird vibe, I would say, when you go through an airport in India. Um, just yeah, that's that's something. No, I definitely have seen that. So when I go to India with with my husband to travel it's like i always push him forward it's like if you just go and ask everything will get done because you'll be put on a pedestal it'll work so i use it to my advantage now it's like i've had enough disadvantage all my life <laughs> you go do the thing i'll tell you what to ask if you ask it it will be available if you ask it we will get into that club if you ask it we will have a table at this restaurant because if i go i'm a blackie at the end of the day for them so that's not gonna work it's, it's funny so like um, you probably still speak some indian languages whenever i go back now to india i always speak in english and then when i can hear them trying to up the cost speaking in hindi then i just suddenly start saying in hindi something they'll be like oh i'm so sorry well we'll give you a discount it's fine yeah i, I it, completely it's really interesting that reverse kind of if you're a non-resident indian is what we're called now non-nri uh, the way they look at you as oh well you're not from here anymore even though i am yeah technically same here like I, I speak about four different indian languages so i have that 
advantage when I go. So I try not to let people know that I can speak the language. And as you said, I would do the exact same thing when I'm buying something. Speak in them to almost put on a fake accent just to sound a little bit foreign. And then when they come back with like, oh, that'll be 2000 rupees. And then I was like, and they just start saying things in Hindi and they just like look shocked. It's hilarious. We got to have some advantage of that, shouldn't we? How did you find growing up, Ashwin? So um, I know from reading your blog, um, you knew you were gay from quite a young age. How was that and navigating kind of knowing what the cultural views of that was? Right, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that links to the profession that I chose. Um, so I became self-aware when I was probably around 11 or 12. And these are the times when you had to go to like a cafe to even access internet. Like we didn't have access to internet at home. So I think I was, so from 12 to 16 was a massive struggle because that's when I thought I am doing something wrong or this is a phase, it'll go away because you have to then, you know, start dating girls or whatever. That will sort things out, never went that far, but I was just like, I'm just gonna try and hide this as much as possible, curb it. But at the age of 16 and 17, when I started having access to internet and then I started I read um I signed up for this little mailing list so it's called the Gay Bombay organization which had these underground parties where people got a secret location on a mailing list and that was that was it that that opened up a whole new world for me I was like oh my god there's so many people in Bombay that are just like me so I'm not an anomaly like I'm not weird or wrong or anything so that really helped me open up a little bit you meet like-minded people people who have the same struggles and that's when one of one of the friends that I made gave me the idea, you need to choose a profession that will get you out of India. Because culturally, that would be appropriate. Culturally, it would be a great thing if you're going abroad to do a master's degree. So I, when I was looking at what profession to choose, physiotherapy was on the top of the list because it was the most sought after in terms of you could go anywhere, Australia, Canada, UK, US, anywhere. So for me to choose physiotherapy was just that reason was like this is going to be my gateway ticket out of india not because of any other reasons that i was like oh this is going to be a great profession or whatever i mean i fell in love with the profession as i started um and as, as i did my bachelor's degree i was like actually this does suit my personality a lot but it was not the reason why i chose the main reason was it was going to be a getaway ticket out of india and it's only when i moved to america where i could then start living my own identity and express myself in a way that I've always wanted to because I was away from family there were no immediate family members I chose a random town in the middle of nowhere I mean I went to Indianapolis I could have gone anywhere in America but I knew that if I went to the bigger cities there will be some random distant relative that might get a hint of what's going on is like well I found out that I wasn't going to the gay bars so I needed to choose a place that was protected away from India and that was literally bang middle of nowhere Indianapolis there we go so yeah that's that's how I chose my profession it was not because I wanted to do it it's because it was going to get me out of India it's funny because that is a great parallel to how Indian society views marriage marriage isn't what you choose it's what your parents choose to help you get away from this especially if you're a female obviously traditionally the uh, the sorry the father will um, marry the bride off and then that's how family unions are joined going back to like medieval times that's what people did was to join families together but that's exactly how my family other people for probably your family view yeah a job that do something good 
our stature goes up in society you move out you go abroad then we can tell everyone oh look you know they've made it they're living abroad now but it's the same as the arranged marriage view which has been shoved down my throat so many times now but people have given up on my family so that's good yeah so i always remember clearly i think it was in 2012 when my dad had already decided like this is who you're gonna get married because he was like you've done your masters you started working in new york and this is the time so i just need to make the decisions for you because you're obviously too too naive to understand marriage and girls and so i need to make that decision for you so fix my marriage with someone which i had absolutely no clue about some random person who lives in australia we had a i remember having this not facetime back then it was skype yeah so i remember having a skype conversation with this girl and she was like you know this is not happening and i was like girl this is not happening from my side either like this is not gonna happen she was like i've got a boyfriend i was like so do i so let's just come up with some random reason why we can't be together so we somehow worked that out between ourselves and let our parents know like sorry we're not a match it's just not gonna work out blah 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 that's the day my dad decided that he was not gonna speak to me and he hasn't spoken to me since then because i shamed him in front of the entire community by not accepting the marriage that he had chosen for me literally we have even when i visit india now it's very minimal just like nods or barely acknowledges my existence even though it's in the same house but just we just don't talk because that was enough for him to not talk to me so i can't even imagine what it would be like if i told him like oh by the way i live in a nice fancy house in liverpool with my husband that's it he'll probably go and just like burn everything down like that's the that's the level that he will go to but it's just this is to give people an understanding of like how intense family relations can be when you come from a south asian society where all bets are off if you upset or you upset that hierarchy or you upset that cultural norm because for my father because he had given his word and i had gone against it that was a massive 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 letdown and i had literally shamed him in front of the entire community and i'm like which community you barely know these people like you've ne- you've literally met this person two weeks ago you don't know who they are how is it that me saying no would have, but I, I can't wrap my head around that nor can he understand why i am not understanding his point of view because i, I will never understand that it's interesting as well that the female that you were talking to also said no and yet actually it was you the reason that that it didn't work out was because of you and you saying no um just that whole culture um yeah it must be really really intense and having an estranged like i've got a strange relationship um with my dad and it really affects you and i would say still now i think it it, it affects me um without even really consciously thinking about it um do you ever worry about kind of obviously because you're in the public eye with the promotional work you're doing do you ever worry about him kind of seeing that you come out no i actually don't because i think i lived with that shame i lived with that guilt i lived with that um self-deprecation for years where i would compartmentalize my life in a way where i was very specific who I came out to because I wanted to make sure that I protect myself like it was safe enough for me to do that because oh can I come out to that friend because that friend knows that one and that one knows that one will that get back to my family because I needed to make sure that my life here in in US was safe so I 
would compartmentalize my life enough to be able to live a safe life. But I think things changed for me after I moved to the UK where now I was someone who was married to a man. So it's like, that was that support from my husband where it's like, well, why are you doing this? You, you live in a country where you have rights. You live in a country where you have protected characteristic. You live in a country where lawfully you're protected from everything. So there's nothing anyone can do to harm you. So now is the time for you to live that life as authentically as you want to. And that kind of changed and flipped a switch in my head in a way where I was like, well, that's right. Like I've always lived in countries where I had to be careful about my identity because in India, it was a criminal offense when I lived there. In the United States, believe it or not, when I was working in the US, it was only 24 states where you were protected as an LGBTQ member in a workplace. Like when I was working in Indiana, I, if say for example, Joe was my boss and Joe found out that, oh, Ashlyn's actually gay. So she'll come up to me and she'll be like, sorry, we have to let you go because you working here is not in line with my religious freedom. And you could actually be fired for being gay without giving any reason in about 26, 25 states in America. So I had to then hide my identity in America as well. So here I am going to the gay bars on the weekend, come back to work on Monday and then hide your identity because you don't want your boss to find out because you don't know if they're gay friendly or not. And you can't tell. So you still have to live that double life because your job is at stake. Most immigrants will have their job sponsored by a company. So they're on a work visa. So I can't let that affect my visa status because if this person fires for me, then I'm visa less and then I have to go back to India. And that is just something I can't do. Whereas moving to the UK where I was like, I have all these rights and how this is why it's so important for people to understand that we have so much liberty here in terms of living the life we want to because we're protected by law. People don't have that in India. People don't have that in in USA. I mean, it, we know with the whole abortion thing, how it's going on in US. So there's there is that implication. And for me, it felt like this was the right time to just it doesn't matter what people in India think. It doesn't matter what my father thinks anymore because I'm done living the life to please him to live that life where I'm constantly trying to you know live up to their expectations because I'm never going to be good enough like no matter what I do it's never going to be good enough because that's how I was raised constantly even if you like did well in school or you did well in your exams yeah you did well but your neighbor's son got 98 percent you only got 97 so that's not good enough so it's like if nothing's going to be good enough why should I start worrying because I know where I am I'm a successful respiratory physiotherapist working in a country where I have all the rights. So I was like, I don't give I don't give a damn anymore. Like I need to go and live my life so people can see that and have that representative who is doing that because then for them it's like, well, Ashwin lived through these uh, same circumstances that I did and if he can do that and so can I. It's that kind of empathy empathy as well with our patients who come from protected characteristics. So if we have patients who are maybe muslim and they are lgbtq plus they go through this exact same stigma taboo in their community but then they're coming for treatment and they might also not be understood you know whatever department it is but it's quite interesting in that sense and hopefully this gives people an insight into what our patients have to go through as well the different identities they have to protect um you know if they're trans for example trying to I mean in India trans has always been actually a lot more accepted than homosexuality which is interesting but um, here obviously there's more rights etc now and it's getting better and 
gender inclusivity, sex inclusivity, etc. But it's just interesting for our patients what they have to deal with on top of a cancer diagnosis or a comorbidity. It's a, it's a lot to deal with. I mean, I still remember when I first moved to the UK, I remember the GP practice were about to register with. There was an Indian doctor and I was like, see, we can't do that. I don't want an Indian doctor because the last thing I want is another Indian person judging me for having a husband and going through the whole rigmarole. I don't want that. And that was me assuming uh, this GP could have been probably the best GP you ever met. But in my head, I have that fear that if I go to a person of Indian origin, then I'm going to get that cultural judgment. I'm going to get that cultural policing and just almost that look in their face where it's like of disappointment like you've let us down as I said like you've let us down as a community so I literally refrained from going to a GP from an Indian origin just because I didn't want that it's changed now but that was my thought so if I who's living an open life can struggle with that I can't even imagine what it must be like for someone who is still navigating their identity still trying to come to terms with their sexuality and then having to navigate healthcare services and access to healthcare, how difficult it must be for them. And that's why it's so important for us as healthcare professionals to make sure that we provide them with that environment where they can openly access healthcare without the judgment or the stigma of accessing healthcare. I really hope any healthcare professionals listening to this have light bulb moments because I think sometimes it's very easy to think right okay I need to be more inclusive in my practice I understand why that is but do they really understand why that is because actually someone talking about maybe their pronouns um you know from within their culture that could potentially mean that they are shunned from from their community like the consequences can be absolutely huge But I don't think healthcare professionals, especially white, British, Christian healthcare professionals, necessarily realise that and have insight into what you've both discussed. Um, And I definitely think there will be light bulbs going off going, oh my gosh, of course people wouldn't disclose to me, a total stranger who's just about to deliver some treatment, when actually they've gone through years and years of discrimination hiding themselves and that goes for any protected characteristic um but i suppose it's about making it inclusive so people feel even if they don't want to disclose anything that their care is inclusive of them yeah even simple things like when i'm filling a form or anything like next of kin i'll put my husband's name and then relationship husband and if you're on the phone they're like your wife like no my husband but he's stevie so your wife it's like no my husband like why why do i have like i literally said that as clearly as i can why is it so difficult for you to assume that what i'm saying is wrong and somehow you know what my next of kin should be like why are you assuming their gender in terms of just because it says spouse it would automatically be a female so it it it's these little microaggressions that sometimes they just pile up and then it just gets so frustrating and then and then one little incident, you'll just lose it because you're like, well, I've had enough. Like, I'm going to tell you off now. We, it, it shouldn't get to that point. We should be able to understand that people come from different backgrounds. People come from different um, gender identities. And it's the more you are open about it, the more easy it is for them to access healthcare without that judgment. So I do think it's very important that we have an environment where people can be who they want to be, but also healthcare professionals providing that environment for them.
I think it's why LGBTQ plus can be viewed as more of a privileged status in the Western world, because in India or in Asia or in Africa, it's illegal. Um, it's not something that is, well, in society isn't the norm, but it is something that's been the norm for a long time. I mean, the first books, I don't know if anyone's ever read, like Alexander, that talks about men with men, and that's from the Greek ages. So it has always been around. It's just we're still trying to accept the difference to what people view as normality. No, absolutely. And it's not just that. I mean, the gay society itself is a microcosm of society at large. So you're going to get people on the left, you're going to get people on the right, you're going to get people in the middle. And just because they're gay does not mean that they will be fully on board with you coming from a minority ethnic culture. Because the amount of times we've we've heard about this where people on dating websites of like no blacks no asians and that 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 within the gay community the amount of racism that exists is is disgusting but at the same time it does exist so you're already navigating that within your own community then you have to navigate that within the society at large and then you have to navigate that within a healthcare system we're trying to access services and the amount of stress that puts on that individual and their inability to then go and seek help is because well they're not going to listen to a brown gay man why would they because i had this experience so and so and i had that experience so i'm going to assume this is the experience that's going to happen so then that limits them from accessing services that they should and even something like sexual health services some people might not feel comfortable with the line of questioning that they're asked just they probably would be like i just want to get my test done and get out of here and we sometimes we need to respect that in terms of how can we provide this information in a way that will be more easier for this person to understand, but at the same time, so we are providing the right information. Because the line of questioning, when you go to a sexual health services, if someone's just doing it as a routine, going through notes, going to paper, like, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? How many people? It can feel quite intrusive. It can, culturally, that can feel quite harsh, because no one's ever asked me that question how many people have i slept with why are you asking me this question i just want to get my test done but how do we then navigate that in a way that is easy for them to understand why these questions are being asked so having that bit of empathy in your line of questioning can also make a difference and then then being able to access those services you see the other thing is when it comes to racial discrimination people think by having to so say me asking you the questions because i'm brown will get on but you've actually highlighted perfectly in this episode that that's the opposite of what you need because if i had my own cultural stereotypes which i still have and i'm trying hard to get rid of them because i hate them but they'll still influence our professional working relationship but that's the other flip side why it's so difficult to navigate still that even if i as a brown indian person if i'm trying to help you there'll still be some cultural issues in my head that might limit how i can help you fully yeah absolutely and as i said i would try and refrain from brown healthcare professionals because i was like oh my god they're gonna ask me about my life and my sexual health and everything i do not want to let you know it's much easier for me to speak to a stranger that's from a different ethnicity that's not going to judge me from a cultural point of view and that is hard because a in terms of to look at the logistics you have a catchment area you can only access so and so services and those are your only two options you're like well i'm i would rather not go and access these services than go and having to deal with that then you're limiting those people from accessing those services and that's why i feel like sometimes within the south asian community we have this stigma of trying to go and 
go to a healthcare professional to get the help that we need because we feel like a this is something that can a can be cured at home because you don't need to go to a doctor but also if the doctor's not going to give you any medications like was that even worth going to the doctor because i haven't received any medications i haven't received an injection then that was pointless i don't know that's that's how i feel like culturally people at least at least my mother or like from my own immediate family if there is no output to that visit why did i go to the doctor <laughs> i don't know if you feel that same way Norman. i mean i don't know yeah definitely i mean i've been when i was at uni in bristol i remember i tried to sign up to a gp service and the receptionist a white lady showed her my passport but she read i was born in baroda in india and she said oh you can't register here I said well i can't have a british passport I said it doesn't matter you weren't born here go away it's like okay uh fair enough so I left and then I called up, complained to the manager. The manager said, oh, she probably just misread it. You can sign up, but we'd prefer if you went elsewhere. I said, okay. And then I found out there was an Indian doctor who worked there. So I managed to get in touch with him. He spoke to, yeah, the, the manager and stuff. And then I was allowed to be a, a person there just to be accepted as a normal person. But yeah, it's weird how it works. So that was another flip side. So. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the thing, it's like, we have such varied experiences, and our lived experiences are our own lived experiences, and we all have experienced in different ways, but if only the society would understand that every person has their own specific needs, and we just need to treat people with the dignity and empathy that we need to, things would be so much easier for people. Um, one of the things that I, I think I've talked about this in a lot of conferences and podcasts, and I feel like it's something that I want to bring up, just because it links with the intersectionality of being an international physiotherapist working in the UK. When I first moved to the UK back in 2017, I was already working as a physiotherapist for like 11 years, had done a master's degree, but I still had to, I was expected to start from a band five level because your experiences are not valid because they're not from UK, they're not from the NHS. So your experience is not valid. I would apply for all these jobs and the requirement says previous NHS experience. I'm like, how am I supposed to have previous NHS experience if I have never worked in the NHS? Like, how do you expect me to do that? But also to minimize your experience down to such level that only if you worked in the UK is your experience valid and good enough to apply for those senior level jobs. Because if you worked in the, UK, if you, in the US or in India, that's not good enough. So you need to start from the band five level. And that to me was just like, I don't understand this and after speaking at a lot of these conferences a lot of people have come back to me and they're like well we heard what you said and we've changed the requirements on our job descriptions now where it says previous relevant experience I'm like yeah that's important because you're limiting a whole set of people and you're stopping them from applying for these jobs because you put those specific requirements which means you're discriminating against people that are not born in the UK I was just going to say, I, I know lots of people, um, the refugees from Ukraine came over, medics who weren't allowed to practice as medics in the UK. And it, it is just absolutely crazy. You just think, well, why not? Yeah. And also for me, it's a invalidation of the Healthcare Professional Council, because if HCPC has given me a license and has approved my experience as valid to be practicing as a physiotherapist, then why is the NHS discriminating against my experience? Because then you're saying that the HCPC as a regulatory body has not done its job because you're saying that your, my experience is not good enough to count as seven years of experience. But the HCPC has given me a registration, a professional license, 
which means they've gone through my paperwork, looked through my experience, looked through my references, and said, no, you're valid, you're fine. So you, for you to then put that in those adverts then limits me from applying for those jobs. And then, and then imagine having to start as a band five at the age of 35, when you've already worked for so many years and then having to try and climb up that ladder is extremely difficult. It is difficult as it is for people from minority backgrounds. And then on top of that, you put these specific specifications in your requirements and then that limits people from applying. But the government showed Ashvin there's no structural racism within the UK. Right, it did, didn't it? Like, funny that. Oh, oh, I have words that I will refrain from saying on this podcast. Yeah, Naaman doesn't want to have to write explicit <laughs> on Spotify and Apple. <laughs> Ashwin, can I just ask, how's it been working in the NHS? Have you found that discrimination still exists? You know, what is it that we need to change? Again, these are my lived experiences. So for me, as a as a gay man, I felt like I haven't had any overt homophobia in the workplace or have had any colleagues that have, you know, put me down or said things because of my sexuality. I also think... Again, as I said, this is my this is my own personal experience. So depending on where I've worked, um, respiratory physiotherapy in general is a very female dominated profession. So that's 90, 95% females. So I feel like it's less male dominated makes it easier to kind of survive and thrive in that environment because there's, I don't know, I feel like there's less judgment coming from females than I would potentially from any kind of toxic masculinity or any kind of male influence. But that's me assuming. I don't know because I didn't have that experience. So most of my colleagues would be females. I'd be like that one male respiratory physio in the team. So it's been, it's been okay in terms of being a person of um, from the LGBTQI plus community. But then there is the intersectionality where I'm also a brown person. Then there are those absolutely massive microaggressions on a daily basis. A starting with how do you speak English so well? Where did you learn to speak English? Um, why are you working at a band seven level when you've only been in the UK for four years or five years? And it's like, well, I, 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 sometimes you have the strength to clap back and sometimes you just want to just put your head down. It's like, whatever, I can't, I can't be bothered with this. But then sometimes it can put you down so much that it ruins your day. And then you keep thinking about it. It's like, why didn't I say something in that moment? Because it happens on a daily basis. You don't always have that inner strength to be able to come back with an answer and put them in their place or try and educate them because it's exhausting it's tiring when you have to do that on a daily basis and i don't think anyone has to go through that so even for me the biggest issue is when you see a foreign name why do you feel compelled to ask people where are they from i do not understand that if someone wants to organically tell you that's different if they want to share with you it's almost like why are you brown like i need to know i need to put you into a box i need to know oh this is why also why do you speak english oh you lived in america for so long that makes sense to me why you can speak english because if you're from india i need you to speak in a way that my brain is used to in my head the stereotype exists in a way that you don't fit that box so that's why i feel compelled to ask you you need to tell me everything so I can put you in a box that is much more comfortable for me to then navigate around. That's that's something that I feel like happens on a daily basis. And I see that happening to other colleagues. 
if someone has a foreign name, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I, ca I can't really pronounce that. I'm just going to call you Ash. My name is literally the most easiest Indian name to say. It's Ashwin. It's not that complicated. It's two English words put together. And if you feel the need to shorten it because you can't say that, then I have a problem with that. Although I prefer being called Ash. But just because you've said that, I'm not going to let you do that. Because now there is, a, there is a reason for you to do that. Not because you asked me like, oh, what do you like to be called? You just want to do that because it's too much work for you to like say Ashwin. It's like two extra words. Like I'm, I can't be bothered to do that. So I'm just going to call you Ash. It's funny with names though. I always get, oh, your name's really unusual. But now I just reply saying, actually where I'm from, it's very normal. Yeah. Just because it's, it's not usual for it's, you. It's not usual for you. It's not your norm. So it doesn't mean that it's not normal. I mean, Ashwin is literally the most common name in India. Like, it's not even like a very uncommon name that is difficult to pronounce. But it's it's the intention. It's the intent with which people ask you those things is where I have a problem with. If someone is genuinely curious, I will be more than happy to explain to them. If someone asks, like... I'm not really aware of Indian cultures, but could you explain what that name means? Like, what does that name mean to you in your culture? That's a valid question for me. I'll happily explain what that means. But it's it's when the when they walk around it just to... For me, the, the subtext is, why is your name foreign? How do I say this? Why are you brown? Well, why do you speak English if you're brown? And why don't you speak in English in a way that I'm used to? Because I don't get it. But it's the tone of how you ask though isn't it like asking someone where they're from if if you say where are you from no where you're really from that's a microaggression and that really offends people um but if you say oh you know how long have you lived in northwest london and then you can start a conversation like that or yeah like you you've been pronouncing my name how my family would pronounce it so naman but my english name is naman because it's just easier or when i play hockey instead of that i just say just call me nan it's just easier but yeah i think i'm getting braver now when i speak to south asian patients i'll introduce myself as numan and it still in my head it's like that feels really nice because it's my name but i'm thinking oh but i don't want to have to go through the whole explanation again because other people call me naman or i've been called norman before because that's how it should be in english like it it's, it is exhausting yeah it's the the funniest thing for me was when i was in america i would tell them oh it's actually ashwin like pronounced with a u so it's like an usher like ash it's ashwin and they were like oh like a schwin bike i'm like w why why i have so many questions why would you compare me to a bicycle like why do you have to put that in a way that it's easy for you i don't get it it's they would keep calling me ashwin and and even here it's like we're just gonna call you ash it's easier like that's fine i don't mind it but at least make an attempt to understand where the name comes from or what does that mean because that to me that's just pure laziness it's not that difficult i always remember because i went to naaman's house and um his girlfriend pronounced his name differently and i went have i been pronouncing your name wrong for like a year and you've never corrected me and he went no he said i just have a british pronunciation and then an Indian and I was horrified like honestly I was absolutely horrified and I was like why and he explained and but honestly I I couldn't imagine having versions of my name like it's it's but I I understand but it is it's it's heartbreaking for me knowing 
that Naaman has an English pronunciation because it's easier for me, not because he prefers it. Yeah, it's always, that's the thing I always say, that it's always us that I have to make the effort. I, I feel like there's limited effort that comes from the other way. Because phonetically, the way you would pronounce, you would spell it is different in India and it's different in the UK. So if someone needed to say Naman's name correctly, then he would have to put N-U-M-U-N and that would make it easier for them to then like, oh, Naman, like, because that's, that's how it's registered in your brain. But then what bothers me is like when you'll say French, Italian and Russian names with perfect pronunciation with no problems, like you know how to pronounce them. And that's when it's like really gets me. Oh, you can make an effort there, but you can't make an effort to say my name. Got it. Duly noted. So Ashwin, I think we could keep talking about this for hours, but you've touched on some brilliant top tips so far already for the pod- like for the episode. And how could you round off maybe just a few top tips for patients, healthcare professionals, students, or just general public who listen to the, our podcast? Um, oh, that's a tough one. I mean, top tips for patients from Indian background, I could do a one month top tips. But what I would say is if you're, if you're anywhere in your journey trying to figure out your sexual orientation, trying to figure out your identity, just reach out to the sources that are within um, that are near to you that you have access to just try and utilize the services to try and help yourself because I, I can understand it can be difficult it can be scary it can feel like someone's not going to understand me they're not going to listen to me but what I say is like it's a two-way street the way people can have judgments about us we can have the same judgments about someone else we can have our own unconscious bias like I had my unconscious bias about doctors from Indian origin like I didn't want to go to and now I have a doctor that is that I don't want to get rid of is literally the best GP I can ever have and she is she's from an Indian origin as like oh she gets me she gets me and that's that makes sense so it doesn't have to be someone within your own culture it doesn't have to be someone within your own religion but just try and navigate that in a way where you have access to those help and if there is services that are available please try and reach out if you're from the physiotherapy profession please reach out to the LGBTQI plus um, CSP network or if you identify as one of the minority ethnics do reach out to the BAME network at CSP physiotherapy and and I'm assuming there are networks within other allied health professions that have access to these so if you're from one of these professions just try and reach out because sometimes all it takes is just to speak to someone who's going through the same things because it's much easier to understand from that person's perspective because they're struggling with the same things that you're struggling with and that just makes it easier for you to navigate. I wish I had someone that I could speak to when I was in my teenage years and in my early 20s that could help me navigate it, but I didn't, and I didn't have any role models. I didn't have anyone that I could just reach out to who could help me out. So if you have role models within your community, just try and reach out to them. People are, if they are there, they're there for a reason. They are willing to help, so just reach out. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's been very, very insightful. Thank you. Um, so thank you to everyone for... Sorry, thank you so much for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Naaman Joel Anderson and Joe McNamara. Please thank you again to our guest Ashwin Mapadia. If you're utilising the podcast for CPT purposes, consider the reflective questions posted uh, along with the links and resources and lit- uh, to literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPT certificate, please complete the Google form link to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Nick Bennett, uh, and he's going to be discussing the Fika app, which is an app to help develop mental fitness. So thank you everyone for listening, and take care.